Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Josh from the JJN Show, and this week I had the pleasure of interviewing Mark Newman Scott, who was my media production professor when I went to the U and was a huge influence on me pursuing the work that I currently am doing today. And as everybody probably has experienced, when you have a really good teacher through school, them and their teaching stick with you pretty much for life. So Mark had a huge influence on media production for me and learning these types of things. And so in this episode, we talk about everything from how he got into the media field when he started out to his teaching. And then, of course, you know, we had to talk about movies and TV. So I hope you enjoy. What's up? This is the JJN Show with Josh, with Jacob, with Nick. Thanks, Mark, for coming on to the, the podcast, the JJN Show, as it is called. Um, I guess let's just start off getting to know you a little bit. So could you give me a brief history? Um, and you can go in as in-depth as you want, but uh, you know, you could talk about being a professor, how you got into that, before that, whatever you'd like. You can give your whole life story if you want. My whole life story. Uh, <laughs> what, as much or as little as you'd like. I'm not sure what your what your listeners or viewers would uh, consider interesting. Well, why don't you tell me a little bit how you got into, let's say, production work? Because that's how I know you is is through being a student of yours, and it happened to be classes about video production and and media production and that sort of thing. So, can you give me a little? background on your background in that field okay well i've always been interested in art and i always planned to uh study art when i got out of out of high school and when i was about i think 13 or so i saw a movie with a couple of my buddies called blow up mm -hmm. it's uh antonioni film and when i was watching it i realized that somebody probably paid this guy to make this movie and i thought and the movie was about a, a photographer and uh it just kind of struck me as something to maybe maybe do someday uh, and so that was kind of my introduction to uh wanting to do things with photography and and film and and such so when i went to the u i originally was going to uh study uh ceramics with uh warren mckenzie is one of the professors there he's internationally known died not too long ago he's well into his 90s and he he was still throwing almost right up to the day he died uh and so that was kind of kind of kind of cool and along the way i discovered uh imogene cunningham who was a photographer and she she worked pretty much throughout her entire life and she died when she was 93. Wow. and at one point in her life she was raising her three sons and for about 10 years she never took photographs outside of the house or of her kids or in her yard and and stuff and i thought that was pretty interesting that she could continue to still do that so when i went to the u we had to have a major we had to have a minor so i took a photography class and 
and that led to taking some film classes and uh, I kind of switched from ceramics being my main focus to photography and film and at one point I found out that the what was then called speech communications which is now communication arts at the university had uh, some video classes and that if I took those classes, I could uh, work for media resources, being a cameraman, for doing exciting things like uh, recording uh, professors' speeches, because there were a lot of the really large classes were were actually watching all these TV monitors, like wow. in parts of Northrop, uh, for your anthropology or you know some of those types of classes, history and stuff. So. That's kind of how I got into this. Hmm. Interesting. So was photography and film, is that like like the actual film that goes into the photography or is it like a kind of a hybrid between photography and like film? You know, we know digital video now, but like the. Well, in this in the studio, filmmaking. Arts, in studio arts, they had they had photography classes and at that point there was no digital right so everything, yeah. everything was done in in a dark room and your beginning classes were all black and white just because of the cost of doing color and the cost of color equipment but then they also had uh, uh, film classes where you shoot film okay and then uh, edit it and tell stories or whatever and so compared to now it was pretty archaic but was it was it still like the same type of thing but instead of saying you know going out and shooting it on film and then cutting it coming it coming back and editing it by cutting it or i don't actually even know how you edit film <laughs> well, <laughs> shooting shooting film is considered destructive because okay. you're actually cutting the yeah. film and gluing it together sure and so it's it's a it's a very different process because you're you're sitting there and you're touching your pieces of film and sure what you would do is you'd hang up a string and take some clothespins and take your different s scenes and hang those up and such and then you would have to take that print which had all the spices splices in it and send it in for being uh, developed. Mm -hmm. So it it was a, it was an expensive process as a <laughs> as a student shooting that kind of stuff where I still have kind of a difficult time looking through the, the lens of my camera and thinking well I don't have to pay for this I can shoot as many sure yeah <laughs> many things as I want which is why my photo library is about a hundred gig so <laughs> sure that's funny so then after the U, I assume you stayed at the U for the entire time and then graduated from the U and then, uh, yep, I got my BF, I got my BFA at the university of Minnesota. And then I was so into the, uh, the video part because yep. that was, that was wonderful. You didn't have to pay for the film and you could yeah. record over, over things and, and such. I, uh, I applied to graduate school and I went to the university of Wisconsin for, Okay. Basically, television production. Okay. And then what did you do from there then after the University of Wisconsin? Did you work at studios? Did you 
Well, what I what I did was I when I was at Wisconsin, and uh, there was a public access channel out in Middleton, which is kind of like a suburb of of uh, Madison, and they had a bunch of the students from my one of my classes uh, come out and show parts of their their production and talk about about it. But what intrigued me was what public access was all about, in that mm-hmm. you you train people off the street and uh, teach them how to tell their stories and and such. And so when I came back to Minnesota, that was kind of what I I pursued. And okay. my first job out of college, I actually was hired by a county library to set up their library access channel. That was part of part of my job besides managing uh, the film collection and photography collection, and I got to buy uh, music for the being checked out. And sure. so uh, that was really where I, I got into public access, and uh, I helped uh, teach a class at the local cable channel at that point who had just opened to a group of people how to u- how to use portable equipment. And once the class was done, they wanted to continue, continue doing it. And so a couple of those guys and myself, we set up a public access entity, a nonprofit, so that we could collect funds and try to run the public access channel and such. And at that point, I kind of got into all the politics of cable because they were just starting to move into the metro area there were some out out state because that was the only way people could get get television and so my interest kind of shifted through that process into more of an activist kind of role in uh, getting channels set up and that eventually led to me being hired by one of the cable companies that was franchising in Twin Cities, trying to win the different different areas to uh, head up their uh, production department and set up the studios and edit systems and the mobile vans we had. And they did local origination programming. That was one of the things that uh, cable companies would come in and promise we're gonna we're gonna produce so much local local programming i mean right down to things like covering school board meetings and Mm -hmm. uh, high school football we did a hundred ton of that in fact at one point we covered the saint paul saints all their home games live uh, Mm -hmm. right from the first first game that they played over in energy park Mm -hmm. oh that's cool so can we let's talk a little bit about uh public access television then since you have uh, some history with it and experience with it how i know public access i and that's like nothing right i don't i don't have any knowledge about it aside from when i think of like public access tv i think of what you said like uh the local coverage of like high school games and things like like you know lots of times there's hockey in minnesota and baseball and football and um, a lot of times it's, uh, I think of like the kids shows, it seems like, and I could be wrong, but I always thought of like, you know, there's children's programming and it's always on like channel two or, 
you know, something like that. So what's the difference aside from what I feel like maybe the obvious of it being accessible to the public, which is, I assume that's what that means, public access. Like what's the right. difference between public access TV and just normal, you know, like TV that you can watch uh, the sitcoms and that sort of thing on? Well, one of the deals with cable, and there would be a lot of companies that would come in and they make presentations to a city like St. Paul or Minneapolis or some, in some of the suburb situations, four, six, 10, 12, 14 communities would gather together and they would be a franchise territory. And while all the cable companies could come in and offer TBS and WGN and what the channels that were available when the franchising wars were going on. But the thing that was different is they would propose this local local television. And one was called a local origination, which was production that was done by the employees of the cable company. And then there was public access. And the public access arm of it was to hold classes, manage equipment that they would check out to the public. So you'd take a class and you could check out a porta pack or you'd take a class in the studio and you could book the studio and come in and, and make a show. But you as an individual from the community was the producer of that show. Okay. And so it really, it used to be described as an electronic soapbox where you could come in with a, maybe a community issue or you could bring in somebody who you found interesting from the community and interview them. And the cable employees that worked in public access would teach those classes and then help people as they were starting to learn to edit or how to use the studio and stuff. But the employee wasn't the producer. Okay. So you can do what you wanted. And okay. of course, the, that occasionally led to some things that the community didn't like. But that programming went only to that franchise territory. So okay. like St. Paul's public access channel, which is still active, would only go to St. Paul, where the suburbs around it, like Maplewood and White Bear Lake, and they were all in a uh, franchise territory together at one point, their programming would go to that community. And there were communities like Fridley and Columbia Heights, which were their own little individual ones. So the cable company would say, we're going to have this many employees. We're going to build you this many studios. We're going to have this many mobile vans and this much, these many port packs. And that became the difference between the different cable companies. That and how much of the area they were going to wire. How, how much were they going to bring it to the to the community. So when you got out into areas of like uh, northern Anoka County, there are parts that weren't as populated. So it would become important to them how far are you going to build out to where there's only three, four, five people per mile. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, all the channels the cable companies offered were pretty much the same lineups. So that kind of became the deciding factor was how much you 
got to do and I started working for the company. I was one of the first probably five employees. Hmm. And so I got to be in at the very beginning before we had even laid any hung any cable because at that time they were still hanging it on the telephone wires. They weren't they weren't doing any underground sure. construction. And so I get to do a lot of things I didn't even learn in school, like how do you build a studio? How big is it going to be? How do you run the how do you run the wiring in there and and such? So, huh? So how did you learn that? Were you one of the people that the cable company was? So the like cable company hired on? me to set up the the public access and the local origination. Okay. So then, how did you so figure then out how we to set had, a studio? We had Obviously, the first things we had to do was order equipment. So yeah. Some of that was described in the franchise agreement, what we would do. And because it was a, a large, large company, they had deals with certain vendors where we would get it. So we had some idea what equipment we were going to, to uh, use. So really, the, the first employee I hired was a video engineer. Okay. And was uh, this kid who worked for a company here in the Twin Cities, a video company that is actually still around, and he was looking to move up. And uh, so I hired him, and then we hired uh, another kid who was actually just graduated as a, as a technician to help us wire the the racks and so we had all this equipment come in and it got all stacked up in this warehouse and we had this big room in the warehouse where we would set up all our racks and uh larry designed the uh wiring layout and vin came in and started running all the cables and making the wiring harnesses and then when we were done they would disconnect everything and so the racks could be moved individually and we'd put them in a moving van and we'd take them to the studio that had been being built wherever it was in that case the first place we we built was columbia heights and so they got a studio and they got a uh, uh, uh edit suite and they got a, a mobile van with three cameras in it and so we built all that stuff and put it together and uh, then there were places like the franchise over in Roseville where they got three studios and three vans and I don't even remember how many edit suites and such. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of how I got started. And once we turned everything on, then we had to put together classes to teach people how to use that. And I had done some classes with the nonprofit that I was helped start. And so I took a lot of the stuff that we had done for that group and turned it into the classes that we use for the company that I was working for. And then that also meant I had to start hiring people to teach those classes and to go out in the community and record programming. Hmm. So I, it kind of ended up getting away from uh, me running the camera, although we did plenty of that while we were franchising. and more into a producer kind of position 
department manager. Cool. So it kind of, I guess, uh, it kind of sounds like you've had from the beginning a background in education of some sort where you were always doing something where you were teaching or something like that. What, uh, especially with like public access, because it sounds like public access, a big part of public access television is the education part, right? Is, is to yep. get essentially to educate the community. So, and anybody, it sounds like could come, like I could go in, well, I guess not me, but you know, my neighbor could go in and say, Hey, I want to make a movie or a, a program about the river that's in our town. And right. they could do that with. Yep. And uh, it, it depended on where you, where you were. I mean, in, in the company that I was working for and in all of our franchises, we wanted people to do their own production. I know over the years, different access centers have, in some cases, assigned somebody to work with somebody and help them bring their vision to uh, reality. But our philosophy was there'd be a lot more programming if we taught a lot more people how to use it and focused on the education part with, uh, with our uh, employees rather than kind of producing it for them. We wanted to empower them to be able to, to do that. And a lot of the people who came in and did access ended up being volunteers for our local origination producers. So when the local origination people would go out and produce a concert or a parade or high school sports, they would frequently get some of those public access people who had been around for a few years to come in and, and uh, run cameras for them or maybe do audio and, and such. And a number of those people who learned public access, volunteered, eventually became employees or found other production jobs out there. So for in a way for them, it became kind of like going to the university like you did in learning equipment, but they did this as something they thought originally was just going to be kind of, well, this is going to be fun. I've never done this. I want to go take this class. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. Yeah. I've always, I think I've seen posts or been told, you know, you can always go to your local, local public access place. And most of them have all this equipment that you can, uh, I don't know if you can have it for free or at least rent it for like a really, really cheap price because, and I didn't really know why that was a thing, but it makes sense that, that it was so, you know, to get that skill out and to educate yep. people like, you know, you can do this. This is, so that's super cool to hear. And, and I love the idea of. Uh, now public access is still around. Right. But it's changed a great deal over the years and now people want to reach a larger community mm -hmm. and so you get youtube uh, sure and you you don't you don't have to take a class you just get yourself a camera you take your phone and you can start shooting stuff and putting it on the cool thing about public access was there was a very much a community feel mm -hmm. where on youtube it's a different kind of community. And that's cool too, because your community can be across 
the United States. It can be part of the entire world. Mm-hmm. And so that has kind of uh, kind of what public access has evolved into. Now, mm-hmm. St. Paul, Minneapolis, both have uh, still have active uh, public access. Um, the group that's up in the northwest suburbs has always been one is one of the best funded and largest they do a daily news show mm-hmm. with their employees that are just about those communities uh, so there's still some of that out there but uh, over the years it's 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 changed a great deal and it's it's not the communication force it once was interesting huh it's weird how that change can come about, but so came through technology. Yeah, technology changed things for people. Yeah, it was a lot more affordable. It. You could own a camera. I mean, when we were talking about Porta Pack, and you remember the Porta Packs at the U, which I didn't even really call Porta Packs. Yeah, that's what their original name was. Uh, you were lugging around a lot of heavy equipment. Mm-hmm where that stuff that you guys were using was uh, much smaller, much more portable. Yeah. Uh, the kind of stuff we were we were using. So you, I'm sure you've seen all those big heavy cameras that people carried on their shoulders and their, yeah. uh, their recording. Well, the first recording was on reel-to-reel tape, and uh, there wasn't even editing for a long time that uh, worked for on that kind of kind of gear and but boy technology just changed everything every every couple of years and then every year and then every six months and yeah you know what it's like yeah yeah i definitely and it's it's a cool thing to see that like um you know you can get these cameras for relatively affordable um there's some that are very affordable but these cameras that are like, the, you know, the size of, you could hold it in your hand yep. and there's, there's huge movies and TV shows like, um, breaking bad was shot on, you know, all these big fancy cameras, but there's some shots that they use of, um, there's that weird shot that he does. I can't think of the director's name now, but he'll put the camera on something. And the scene that I remember is like a shovel. You know, put it on like the shovel looking yep. up at the character, right? And there's a lot of different takes of it on other things. But that camera that they used most of the time was just a Canon 5D. It was like a Mark II at the time or Mark III. Right. And that was a, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar camera. It's like this thing that the everyday person could own. And yep. they're shooting on it for this TV show that is one of the biggest, you know, most well-known TV shows in the last however many years if not ever it's it's interesting and then with phones too you know there's plenty of people that have shot full feature length films on an iphone which is crazy and then you go and sit in a movie theater and you watch this thing that was produced and made on an iphone and so well again it's technology i mean the quality on on the high-end iphones is pretty outstanding pretty amazing Yeah, it is. And uh, it, it, it's affordable. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing is the affordability. Anybody can can make these brilliant things. But yep. well, um, these porta packs we used to check out when we first were working would be five, ten thousand dollars. Wow. 
So there weren't a lot of people buying their own. So public access provided that ability to people who wouldn't have it otherwise. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's interesting. So moving on then from your your time as uh, with public access, when did you become a professor? Like, uh, did you teach at other well, schools? I, was, I, I did actually when I was when I was working in cable and I was with the public access group. Um, Anoka and I don't even remember. I think Anoka Ramsey came to our nonprofit and, and said they wanted to start a uh, some video classes, but they didn't have any facilities. And so we wrote up a uh, studio class and a portable class and uh, created an internship mm-hmm. for them. And so I did that. Some of the people who ended up working for me did that, did some of, taught some of those classes. And we did that for, for several years. Um, then uh, I, worked, I worked for the cable company for... A long time. <laughs> I mean, about 25 years. Sure. And went through a ton of changes. And at one point, a new regime came in, and we're going to change everything. And and uh, the group that I watch, I oversaw almost all of our public access at one point had been passed on to the cities to run. Which it should be. It should should be a nonprofit. It shouldn't have been run by the company. We were a way of jumpstarting it for them. Um, Columbia Heights was the only franchise that never ever started their own nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I was doing was more on the local origination end, and I think I'd been working there for about. Five years, they decided they were going to start selling commercials on some of the the channels that gave a minute or two minutes to the local company to run whatever commercials they wanted to run. So that meant we had to have producers who could shoot commercials, write scripts, meet with clients. And so... Uh, they decided. They said, "Well, this is kind of production. You got it. You have producers. Let's turn this over, over to you. And oh, by the way, go out and hire a bunch of account execs to, to sell this, mm-hmm. which was a challenge because I had a degree in art, mm-hmm. <laughs> not in in business. Yeah. And so that became part of the job. And long story short." It got to the point where a new group came in and they said, we don't want to do your local origination anymore. They bought the company. I can't even tell you how many different companies I went through with not even changing the office I was in. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they they said, well, you know, we want, to, we want to start cutting back on the number of producers you have. And uh, I'd gone through a number of different company changes. And at one point... I knew what was going to happen. They were going to say, you're too expensive. We'll lay you off. You've got a nice severance package. And uh, now the the company still sells advertising. They don't have any production employees. Hmm. 
it's all done by freelancers that they hire to produce their commercials. And economically, it's it's cheaper. They don't do any local origination anymore. So uh, a lot of the high school games now get covered if there's a public access entity. If there isn't, then they don't get done. Sure. So at that point, I needed to find a new job. And some of my goals were, one, not to work for a large corporation anymore. Mm-hmm to not have to go to a whole bunch of meetings as a department head uh-huh. and to do something that was kind of like when I first started, which was, sure. it was really fun. Sure. I worked with a lot of really great guys and, and, and such, but once it became more of a, more of a business focus than a community focus, it, it became not as much fun. Sure. And so I was looking to work for a nonprofit possibly. Um, but like I say, something that didn't have a lot of meetings, didn't have a big corporate structure. And so uh, I found out there was a opening at the U to teach video production. And I liked teaching when I was doing public access classes. And uh, so I took the job. Now, I found out the university, in many ways, is a very, very large corporation. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, fortunately, I didn't have to go to a lot of meetings. I got to focus on my classes. And uh, the one thing about video production for me and why I always always enjoyed it was it was fun. Mm -hmm. So it goes all the way back to being a little kid and playing with clay (laughs) and making animals and doing art so after you i guess this is kind of a specific question but as a video production professor how do you how do you know like what to teach people like do you get a a um what's it called like a curriculum that you have to follow or is it kind of a thing that you go in as the experts and you decide the the it was interesting that some of the classes that I took were actually some of the classes that I ended up teaching. And that was, you know, 30 years later. Mm-hmm. But the classes had changed uh, uh, a great deal. And when I started, there were, I think, three production classes. And one of them was an audio class that didn't get taught all the, all the time that uh, the guy that I actually shared an office with created. And so he and I got to kind of brainstorm how we wanted to do the do the classes. 3201 had been kind of the bedrock, the introduction to video production for a number of reasons because studio production you get in you get almost instant results you learn to work as a team, you, you see how things are put together, because when you're cutting between your multi-cameras, you're actually editing. Mm-hmm. And so that class was hitting a lot of the, the things like why we spent half the time in the classroom was the aesthetics, because aesthetics are aesthetics. Whether it's a single camera, it's a multi-camera, whatever the situation is but with 3204 peter and i 
really got to do a lot with that. Uh, a former graduate student had kind of created the class, but it hadn't really been totally formulated. Peter had done some stuff before I got there that kind of became the basis to it. So we, we decided, you know, these are the things that we need to do when we get to 3204, we, we need to do more about storytelling because that's really what production is. It's not paper and pencil, it's cameras and editing, but it's still, sto it's storytelling. And so we needed to work on how we were going to, to teach that. And after I'd been there for a couple of years and teaching those classes, it became really clear to me that we needed a senior project class. Plus the university was pushing for classes that weren't the typical sit down, do some research, write a, uh, mm -hmm. a, a large paper. And uh, of course there were some things they wanted to include in that uh, and that became the how we, I use the production book as the part of the senior senior paper and some of the elements we taught about audience and viewers and, and such. Um, so I put that class together, I made a proposal, I had to get the department uh, faculty to vote on whether or not it would be included. Uh, then it went to CLA because Tom was in uh, is in CLA. CLA needed to approve it. Once they approved it, we were I was off teaching the class. Oh, well, glad that it got approved because that class was probably the most important class that I took at the U, or one of them, if not the most important. So it was in some ways similar to a class I took in Wisconsin, except we did it in the studio, so we shot it live. Mm. And the difference was, instead of coming up with an original story, we were supposed to take a book and adapt it into a 30-minute live multi-camera shoot. Mm -hmm. But I like the idea of the, of the class where we, and we worked in a group of three instead of you guys working in by yourself with mm -hmm. people you chose. Um, we were the producers. We got to choose what the book was. We chose who wrote it and who, you know, how, how the process went, much like I wanted to do in 4201. Hmm. Interesting. I think um, something that you touched on of saying that production is about telling the story is something that I've I I don't know I think it's a good conversation to have because it's it's like a uh, an idea that when I came into this and was you know interested in making like movies and TV and, and that sort of a thing it was this thing that I didn't ever think about like you just I'm, I was used to watching these things that were just good. And because the story was good, it was, it was like I was being carried by it. I never thought about the story really being this, like the main thing, you know? And then it's on top of that, it's like, okay, well, in order for me to do these things, I need to be able to 
have a fancy equipment and make super pretty things and all this stuff um, to make something that's good, right? And then I remember taking these classes with you, and I don't remember which class it was um, because I didn't have a class with you until my second one. And it was probably right away in the second one where I don't remember exactly what you said, but essentially since I finished college, the what was in my head from that that I took away from it was like, you know, essentially nothing else matters in a sense. I mean, obviously it does, but nothing else matters if your story doesn't matter, right? And so... Well, if your story like, sucks, you might yeah. make a really pretty picture. Exactly. But uh, you're, you need to bring your viewers, viewers into it. And, yeah. you know, if you look at... If you did you watch Fargo? Yeah, yeah, I watched Fargo a long. The time. cinematography in that is amazing, mm-hmm. but it's still about the story. Yeah. And so one of the things that we wanted you to be exposed to in your classes at the U was a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. because as you know, you don't have to be the screenplay writer. You don't have to write the, the script, but you kind of need to understand the process that the script writer goes through. Yeah. And if you're the cinematographer, then you want to know how am I visually going to tell this story? Yep. Because as we talked about many times in class, it's not all about saying it, it's about showing it also. And how can you be lean with your words? when the camera can do some of the telling more powerfully than the words, but both are part of telling the story mm-hmm. in an audio, the sound, the soundscape you create, how it creates the space or the location, how that is helping to, to tell the story. And that's, that's what I really like about filmmaking, video production, whatever you want to call it is the many different layers of telling that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably like the biggest thing that I learned and had taken out of it. And I, <clears throat> I go and I present to the 3204 class. Um, I've done it pretty much every semester now since I finished school. Good. And I mean, I love it. I, I don't know. I like talking to the students and everything. And they're always, you know, interested about, and most of the time they're like what I was like, where it's like, yeah, I want to shoot movies for Netflix and for Hollywood. And, and, you know, that's fine. But, and then uh, most of them will probably realize that that's probably not what they want to do. And I, I remember um, during a class, you said that somebody was coming here to cover something and they needed PAs. And so I reached out to this, this person to get this PA work. And I was doing this essentially literally I was doing was carrying lenses for this guy. And he was like, okay, give me this one. Okay. And then I held it. Okay. Now give me this one. And then we drove and I, you know, I drove their rental van for them and I called rental places. You know, I was just this helper. And so I used that time to ask them about things. And I remember asking this guy why he was shooting what he was shooting. Because I was like, unless you really love, they were, we happen to be covering basketball. And I was just thinking, unless you really love basketball, 
you know, how could you enjoy doing this? And I asked him like where he came from. And he said that he was, uh, he worked on feature films for a while. And I just remember being like, that's so cool. Why aren't you still doing that? And he said, I hated it. I hated shooting them. And he talked about you're with this crew and you're working for 15 straight hours and you don't sleep enough and you don't eat enough. And a lot of times people aren't very nice and all. And so then I started thinking about, okay, what do I really want to do then? And uh, what I think helped me from the taking these classes at the U was I always tell the, the students when I present is when I finished, I remember thinking, how come we didn't learn how to use a camera? I mean, we use, we learned how to use a camera, but right. I was like, how come we didn't you learn how to like run a camera, like a Hollywood cinematographer can, you know, I was like, that's kind of what I wanted to get out of this. But then I remember uh, the whole, you know, story is King and you need to be able to tell the story. And at one point you said something along the lines of you can go out and you can buy a manual and learn how to use that camera in a matter of days if you needed to, but you can't like learn how to tell a story, right? I mean, you can learn, but you can't, it's not just this, this like uh, technical thing that's as easy to learn as it is like running this piece of machine. And those aren't obviously the exact words, but out of, coming out of that, I started to realize, you know, a year or two years later, as I started shooting more things and working with more people um, that were really good at cameras, but weren't as good at telling stories, I was like, okay, this makes sense because I learned how to use my camera in like a couple of weeks and shoot these beautiful things. And I, I can't compare it, you know, cause my technical skills aren't the same, but knowing how to tell these stories is such an important part of the production that took me a little while to realize, even though it was really just, you know, told, you know, in class, this is what's important. This is what's important. And there's well, other that, things that go into it. That was really kind of one of the, one of the things that we had to decide as we were putting what we were going to put into the classes because classes were only so long and there was, no way we were going to get the department to turn it into a film school where we could have a class just in cinematography um, where we spent a lot of the, the technical. And so our feeling was for people who were getting a liberal arts education that were interested in, in production, the best thing to teach them was about story show them how they can use a camera to help tell that story, how they can use sound to tell that story, and cross our fingers that those who really love the technical, like Ben Inky, who you had on, is pretty much self-taught when it gets down to <laughs> yeah. that real technical part of, uh, of the camera. But hopefully, and I believe, he has a good foundation in storytelling from the, the stories he told in class and the things he's done since then. So it's just sort of our philosophy and how we wanted to uh, approach teaching these classes. And to be honest, a little bit of the selfishness is I re that's what I really enjoy. 
I enjoy being a production manager, doing all that organizational stuff that nobody wanted to do in class, <laughs> and telling telling that story. Yeah, and I mean, we had the resources, and back to the YouTube thing, it's like you can learn all these things on YouTube, right? I, everything, yep. all the technical stuff that I learned how to do. I don't think I even know how to properly white balance after school. And it's such an easy well, thing. You that, should have. Well, I, I kind of was like, I remember, I remember doing it, but I didn't pay attention to that specific part. Or, so I don't remember what it was. I remember having that lesson during the class, but there were so many things that I watched one YouTube video on and then was like, okay, now I know how to do white balance, exposure, shutter, you know, all these different things. It was that easy. Okay, it makes sense that we didn't need to spend a week learning about this because now I have the resources to do it. And editing, like I didn't know much about editing besides like cutting stuff on Premiere. Well, watch some videos on it. Now I can edit pretty yep. well enough, you know? So that was a... Uh, that was the biggest thing that I got out of, out of all that. Um, and I think well, it's think helped a lot. About, think about shooting a wedding. Yeah. You're telling a story. First and foremost, you know, you're telling a story. Now the, the people who hire you are thinking, oh, I want to be able to look and see how this looked. Mm -hmm. But I know from seeing your work, when they watch it, they go, oh, look, there's me in my wedding dress or there's yeah. me the, the groomsman. But at the same time, there's a story being told. Yeah. And so the first time they watch it, yeah, they're probably looking at themselves and seeing their friends <laughs> and stuff. The second, third, fourth time they look at it, they're starting to see the story that you've created. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's something that I continue to work on to perfect in a way. Um, with weddings, it's that's why I love them so much because you get to meet this new couple every time, and then it's this brand new story every time. It's just yep. it's like making a new movie every time you're with this different couple, and that's something that I've noticed as well. That there's all, there's so many people shooting weddings, right? There's so many people that do it, but there's like this level that once you get really high up to those high level there's like the famous wedding video creators in the world. And when you start shooting weddings and if you really get into it, you know who these people are. There's like these top 10, 20 people that are making tons of money, but they do it because they love it. And the reason they're up there, you realize is because, you know, obviously their work is beautiful. They have done this for so many years. They know how to use their camera. They're beautiful shots. They're like cinematographers in their own wedding art way. But the reason that they're separated is because they tell these amazing stories. It's like yeah. they, there's this level of people that just go and shoot super beautiful weddings still, but it's, they're all the same, right? They're, you're seeing all these wedding films. And then there's this upper tier, and it's like they're making these documentaries, these feature films, but they're wedding videos. And that's yeah. what makes them so special and unique. So that's, that's what I strive to be is that, that unique, you know, this uh, people want to like look at my work and oh that's josh's work you know it's different it's hit that you can tell that that's my wedding video that sort of yep. thing i think that's yep. super cool just like and, you know uh, a quentin tarantino movie or uh 
anybody else. I can't think of any anybody else off the top of my head, but you know, they all have that you know it's their movie, the Cohen brothers, the all of those people. Yeah, because in all their cases, the story comes first. Mm-hmm. And when you shoot a wedding video, you're you're making a documentary about mm-hmm. that day or whatever, how much they allow you to invade their life and 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 tell that that story. And in, in a lot of ways, your clients are your executive producers because mm-hmm. they're telling you some of the things that they want you to include. Mm-hmm. But they're like any other client, whether it's a client for a commercial or an industrial film, they kind of know what the this, this story, what they want told, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to yeah. put it together. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, uh, a funny, like, interesting thing that I heard somebody talking about was, uh, and this can be the last thing I talk about wedding videos on, but a guy, <laughs> a guy was talking about, um, it was an interview with one of those top creators because everybody wants to know how do you shoot wedding videos and get people to pay you twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand, you know, this crazy amount of money, and I can't even get paid me five hundred dollars. And he said, um, he shot this wedding video one time. And he talked with the couple and this couple was amazing and they were super fun and outgoing and it was going to be a great video. And he goes into the day and he always goes into these wedding days looking for a story to tell. That's, you know, there's always the story of the couple, obviously, because that's what the wedding's about. But he said he, he came into this day and there was this old retro beaten down bus that they had brought. And he thought, this has to be a story. And so he made this wedding video and the story was intertwined between this bus that had had to have had some sentimental value to the couple and the family and the couple's wedding day. You know, and he intertwined these two things to make this story about this. And the interview was just so interesting because you realize that how many people would have thought of that? You know, this it's a bus, you know, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll get some cool shots of them kissing in front of it or something like that. But how many people would have thought, well, tell me about this bus. You know, we're here. Why is this here? Maybe talk to the father, the grandparents, you know, the sides of the back. So that's what I think about when I think of how to, I don't know, separate yourself in making weddings different or anything like that. But well, we can makes move your on. work so much more rich yeah. to have a story like that because it reveals something about these people and these pretty clothes they're wearing yeah, exactly. and why they're making this and, and you know, and you're talking about it, what you're showing is you have a passion for what you're doing mm-hmm. and that's what makes work fun. Yeah. Now yeah, exactly. it'd be nice to make that twenty, thirty thousand dollars <laughs> yeah. video because you can pay the bills, you can get better right. equipment and such. But when it comes right down to it, it's, uh, it's being passionate about what you were doing. And while when I worked in cable, I thought I did a lot of important things. I hired a lot of really cool people and it became part of their career. And I felt that was important, giving people jobs and stuff. I was really passionate about teaching. I really, really, I really enjoyed it. And for me, it was like relearning everything again, uh, because I don't think I got the education that you guys got. Mm. And part of that was because a lot of my, 
a lot of my photography, well, some of the photography teachers and and in particular the some of the film teachers, I didn't feel like they really cared about teaching. Sure. There were some other art teachers who, you know, were very different. There was a, a sculpture teacher who had to take his part of my minor, but he he turned out to be a, an important mentor for me. There was one of my uh, drawing teachers who who became an important mentor, and it wasn't because he taught me how to draw so much as it was he, what he taught me about art and how it was important to him and his life and such. And those really, I felt, at least for me, were part of the importance of what I learned and de- as I developed in my choice of being of doing expression. And photography and film became, became my main way of doing expression. And I, I still do I still do ceramics, but it's it's an entirely different experience, and I don't have the passion for it that I do for photography and film. Sure. So, I guess uh, let's let's close this uh, interview out with some talk about uh, movies and TV. I guess I don't remember, but did you do you ever uh, did you ever tell students like? you know, this is what, you gotta go watch this, you know, like, what's a class, like, The Godfather, you know, you gotta go watch The Godfather, or, you know, something, what's something that you think, like, everybody should go watch and experience? Well, I don't know that I can say everybody should go watch, because everybody has different sensibilities and such, but there were things, as you, I'm sure you remember when we were, you were in class that I would bring up, and there were things that I would either show clips from or I would show photos from while we were talking about different kinds of technique or lighting or whatever. And those were usually from things that I thought were really good. And I, and I told many students, and I know I always talked in 4201 in the, the, or 4204 in the... Um, um, early in the class that uh, The Wire was one of my absolute favorite <laughs> television shows. And while I think it's well made technically, it all comes down to the story and how the characters were so well developed that were in it, how they were all individuals and you understood their motives and such. Uh, and it could have technically been not as well made, but it would still be an interesting show because of the story and such. Um, and I love movies, but I have gotten so that I really like the episodic storytelling where it's week after week and you, you really get to know these, these characters. It's not two hours of this character. It's, you know, be a hundred hours of them, depending on how long the series goes. I mean, using your your Breaking Bad, one of the most interesting characters was Walter White's wife, whose name escapes me right now, and how that journey changed her and what she became. Mm-hmm. That was it's stuff like that that really I find interesting and things that people people should watch 
a lot of the minutia and why I think something is good, most audiences aren't going to care about because they really what they care about is the story, whether they like the story or they don't like the story. But one of my favorite films is is Chinatown. Okay. And, uh, what I no matter what you think about Roman Polanski, one of the things Polanski said about Chinatown, he was concerned that he didn't want the studio to take his film away from him and change the edit. So he shot it with almost no master shots. Ha. Huh. Which would make it more difficult for them to condense the story by using these master shots. He shot lots of close-ups and medium shots. He used wide shots only when he needed to create a sense of location and space. And so it's that kind of some of that behind the scenes stuff that I really, I really enjoy and what I really like. But I think it's also a very interesting story, which is based on a true story of what happened in Los Angeles with, uh, with, with the water and, and such. I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of old black and white films. Okay. One, just because it's, it's a different style. Uh, and you can see that there were different things going on in the world that why they did did this. I mean, a lot of the stories were not about the downtrodden the people in the movies. They always had enough to make it in life. And some of that, some of them were rich. It wasn't a reflection of what society was at the time and how that changed and how film and television reflect. The times, I mean, the the difference in the movies about Vietnam and how they changed. And, you know, you look at Stanley Kubrick's uh, Full Metal Jacket compared to John Wayne and the Green Berets. <laughs> they're both about the same war, but the way they're handled, how they tell it is night and day different. Interesting. Oh, that's cool. I have not seen very many uh, black and white movies, unfortunately. I should probably <laughs> do that. Watch them. There, yeah, there, there, there. It's interesting to see what they're working with. It's, it reminds me of when I was in art school, and in drawing class, obviously, we had a piece of paper and a pencil. Yep. And we maybe advanced to uh, chalk or pastels or something. But then you take a painting class. And you're working in an entirely different medium with a different kind of freedom and and parameters that you you work in. It's like how you choose to what you choose to shoot as a photographer. And one of the things that it took me years to figure out is what do I like to take what do I like to take photographs of? Early on, I wanted to be a street photographer. I wanted to be like. Gary Weingrand and people like that and taking lots of kind of candid pictures of people in, in situation. And now I've gotten, so I really like taking more quiet photographs of buildings or I especially love walking around looking at what's on the ground and taking pictures of, of what's on the, on the ground. When I used to go to the U, I would use the, I had going into the, on the uh, light rail. And I got f 
fascinated with uh, the movement when you'd look out the window and how things were changing or you would see the trains coming into the station. So I've got a whole bunch of footage and still pictures of, of the light rail, which I someday I'm going to get around to digitizing <laughs> and, and making a film. But it's not going to be so much as a story. When I was doing film in college, I do story ones, but I also like to do these kind of avant-garde, weird, looking at colors and motion and how they went together, which is not telling a story. It's more all about how you make somebody feel who's looking at it. Mm -hmm. I used to go to this group at the Institute where they would show their, their films and it was always interesting to hear the critiques. And I, one film that really stuck in my mind was there was a guy in a room and there were blackboards on like four walls. And it seems like it was 40 minutes long. I don't know that it was. And all this guy did was walk around the room and draw a line on the board and then go to the next one and draw. And that's all he did for the 20 minutes or, or whatever it was it was just it was kind of insane huh. and most of the most of the people who were there showing their films were really angry with this guy <laughs> for putting through it and when i thought about it then and i thought about it later it was like it was more about the experience of watching it feeling the tension in the room the people looking around and then the anger that was let out afterwards than it was about what he did. And now I have no idea why he chose to do that because it got really boring after a while watching <laughs> the same thing over and over. <laughs> but I've always kind of liked making a avant-garde film, so that's probably what I'll do with my light rail footage and photographs. Interesting. Huh. Huh. Well, uh, uh, I, I like what you said about how you make people feel and how like that movie made me how that movie made you feel and the room and uh that makes me think of like uh we saw the lighthouse i don't remember when it was but the recent one uh which i think happens to be in black and white as well but i remember i took my uh girlfriend at the time to see that movie with me and you know i'm always like hey let's go see a movie let's go see you know i want to go see movies She's not so much into movies, that sort of a thing. And we went and saw this movie. And I, I knew that it was shot in a certain way and that it was going to be kind of, you know, an uncomfortable horror type of movie. And we came out of it and she just hated it. Just <laughs> absolutely. But the, I was like, but I, I just said, you know, that means that they did a good job, right? Because it wasn't like the story and it wasn't like it was a bad movie it was great but so many people probably came out of it like i never want to see something like that again like that i hated how i felt mm -hmm. and sitting in the theater you could just feel the energy of the other people whenever this i don't remember when this movie came out but just everyone's sitting there and it's kind of like i just imagine everyone was kind of like crunching up in their seat it's like i can't even watch this right now sort of a thing so that's a, a good point to well, the, bring up for them. The worst thing you want to do is show somebody a piece of art or photograph or something, and the first thing they say is, that's interesting.
Now, if they say that's interesting after some conversation and some critiques, it's different. But when the first thing they say that's interesting is, says to me, if I'm the artist, yeah, you really didn't like it that much, but you don't want to say, you know, I really don't like that. Or I'd really rather hear, I really don't like that, and this is why I don't like it. It's like we used to say in class, every film isn't for everybody. Mm-hmm. Every every piece of art is not for everybody. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you what you were saying about the lighthouse. <laughs> I mean, but that's what you want, right? I'd rather, I've talked to a lot of people about this, but I would rather make a movie or a piece of art or something, create something and have people on both ends of the spectrum you know, I'd rather make something and have people absolutely love it and have people absolutely hate it than make something and have everybody just kind of be like, oh, yeah, that was good. You yeah. know, because there's no feeling, at least in the first one, you have these extreme feelings on both ends. Right. You're creating this thing that everyone is feeling. And so it's interesting. We can end it. We can end it on that point. Think okay. of that. Just make sure to create. Great thanks for feeling, right? So, cool. It's part of it. Well, part of the thank process. you. Thank you, Mark, for uh, coming on and having a chat with me. It was very well, interesting. Thanks for asking. Thank